0: Welcome to Asia New Horizons, where law enforcement practitioners and academics get together to share knowledge and ideas to shape the future of crime analysis.
1: Hi everyone, uh, my name is Daniel Schwartz. I'm a, a professor and a program coordinator at uh, Humber College in Toronto. I am the program coordinator and, uh, for a program called Protection, Security and Investigation, or PSI. The PSI program is a two year diploma program that sort of sets uh, students up for careers in various different areas of law enforcement, including everything from sort of traditional law enforcement, um, policing, corrections, border security. To the corporate security world is one of the sort of biggest and growing uh, areas in the world of security. And so that's everything from um, basic security to loss prevention, to uh, doing more type of desk work, like analytical work in the areas of risk management and threat uh, risk assessments for travel, and also extends into areas of traditional policing, but as a civilian. And that's the area that I came from. I was a, a civilian for, I guess, 11 years with Criminal Intelligence Service Ontario, or CISO. And I was a criminal intelligence analyst during those days. And I was there in the policing world, but as a civilian. So there's this whole um, interesting area of work that's available in, in the fields of crime and intelligence analysis that's uh, continual, continually... Opening up to civilians. If you want to become a crime or intelligence analyst in Canada, anyways, there's a couple of different routes you can go. One would be to come up, become a police officer, and sort of work your way up in the policing world. Maybe work in some specialized units, and then eventually work your way up into intelligence uh, and crime analysis. Or you can come in as a civilian, which is what I did. So yeah, I worked for about 11 years as a criminal intelligence analyst, and then made the transition over to uh, Humber College to become a program coordinator and to teach uh, in the program and specifically to develop and teach courses in crime analysis and intelligence analysis. So that's where I am right now.
0: So you've come over to the dark side teaching now. (laughs) No, it's, it's good teaching. But you've had a really... Interesting career, because you've gone into this world of intelligence. And I just wanted to get your perspective on what did you what was it like for you? Like, was it a a good uh, experience? Has it helped you now teach other individuals about it? Like, how do you feel reflecting back?
1: Yeah, I guess. And this is an important thing for all of your uh, sort of aspiring uh, crime intelligence analyst listeners to to be aware of, which is that the, the path into this kind of field can be very indirect. It can be very winding. And it certainly was, in my case, I did not have a direct path right from, you know, from school into this field. Um, I started off Uh, doing an undergrad at McGill University of Montreal in uh, international relations, political science. And then I went to uh, the University of Toronto for a master's in environment. Well, it was in political science, but also environmental studies. And while I was at uh, the University of Toronto doing this master's program, I took uh, a course with um, an individual by the name of Thomas Homer Dixon. Some of your listeners may be familiar with his work. He was sort of at the forefront of this intersection between security and the environment. And um, this was something that really intrigued me. And in particular, he he was interested in how environmental conditions could influence uh, sort of the disruption of society and lead to violent conflict, mostly in developing nations. So sort of how environmental conditions sort of were interwoven uh, along with other social and economic conditions to create conflict. So this was, I would say, my entry point, I guess, into the, to the world of security, where it was the, at this intersection where, you know, environmental issues meets international relations issues meets um, sort of security-related issues. And I became interested in this, and so I went on to work with him uh, to do my PhD in this area. During that time, <clears throat> in the first couple of years uh, of doing my PhD research in this area, we had a meeting that was uh, with the uh, CIA from the United States. And uh, this sort of, I guess, sort of made me even more intrigued, I guess, um, about this area of security. The CIA at the time had something called their State uh, Failure Task Force. And what the the, uh, State Failure Task Force was charged with doing was trying to figure out what are the conditions um, that lead to uh, state failure? What are the economic factors? What are the social factors? What What are the political factors? And also, What are the environmental factors? So they became very interested in this whole area of research as well that Thomas Homer Dixon was kind of spearheading and that I was working in, which is how do these environmental conditions, things like deforestation, soil erosion, um, loss of arable land, things like that, how do they play into the social and economic um, milieu that ultimately leads to um, state failure and to violent conflict in developing nations? So that I guess, that CIA meeting kind of intrigued me as a, a graduate student. This was something kind of, um, you know, quite interesting to me. And then, uh, so from there, I would say that, I, you know, there's, again, st- still not a sort of straight line into the world of intelligence analysis. What happened is that I had uh, a friend who was working with Canada's uh, spy agency, and they let me know. Uh, that there was an opening at this rather obscure (laughs) intelligence agency in Ontario called Criminal Intelligence Service Ontario. This was about uh, three quarters of, I guess, of my way through uh, my PhD at the time. And so I applied to uh, CISO, and lo and behold, I was contacted for an interview. And, um, you know, from there, I uh, just uh, sort of, was immersed into this world of uh, intelligence analysis. So a, a couple of things there, I guess, of note for listeners who are maybe um, looking to get into these fields. One is that, again, it's not a straight path. And oftentimes I've, I've talked with other intelligence analysts, career professionals in the field, and they've told me the same kind of story, that they they hadn't maybe um, you know some sort of long-term goal of getting to where they wanted to be in the world of crime and intelligence analysis. But the, the path there certainly was not... Straightforward, um, and also there's there you know the, the importance of connections in the field. Uh, it's it's a little bit of not what you know but who you know, um, and it's the same in every industry. And in this case, you know, I happened to know someone who was working in this field. They happened to tip me off about a, a particular kind of position. And I applied and I got it, but I wouldn't have known about this position without that kind of connection in the first place. So I guess it's important to keep in mind the whole uh, idea of networking, uh, developing professional connections. This is something that I really preach to our students in our program, that um, you need to make those kinds of professional connections. You need to put yourself out there and um, and grow your uh, your network.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, I think networking is so important. Um, And you've you've completed a PhD, and I'm in my sort of coming up to my final year doing mine. And it's it's not what you know, it's who you know. And they and it really does open doors. I mean, I was in uh, Canada a couple of weeks ago for three months just by networking, and how powerful that tool actually is. Um, Yeah, so I completely get it. What a career you've had! I mean, talking to the CIA whilst you're at uni—that's just that's just insane. Talk to you a bit about your um, current research and work. You've touched a little bit on it, but let's just delve deeper into that.
1: Okay, well, I mean, my first area of work really is, is the, the the program at Humber College, which I'm, I'm very uh, devoted to. And um, I feel that it's a really um, sort of a unique program. There are other PSI programs in Ontario, Protection Security Investigation Programs. But what we've tried to do really is to differentiate our program by focusing um, not just on the traditional areas of law enforcement, because a lot of the the PSI programs in Ontario, this is what their their focus is on students who are interested in becoming police officers um, or corrections officers working in the the prisons system um, or going to uh, CBSA, which is Canada Border Services Agency. But, you know, a, a lot of that is already sort of covered In other programs, like we have police foundation programs, we have a police foundation program at Humber College as well. So when I came um, into the program in 2014, my first order of business was really to try to expand um, the the avenues, the potential avenues for employment for our, our graduates, and especially into the areas of corporate security and private security Because, again, that's to me, that's the the growing uh, part of the pie um, and the biggest part of the pie. Um, And also into the areas of um, working in law enforcement, but as a civilian, because increasingly, I don't know what what the situation is like in the UK, but in Canada, increasingly different types of areas are being civilianized. It's you know, it's it started with crime and intelligence analysis. It's moved into Uh, forensics now, like forensic identification positions are now becoming civilianized. Um, And eventually, it's also going to to move into areas just of first responders to uh, sort of low-level events. Like if you have, let's say, just a a regular sort of pedestrian type of uh, break and enter, the future is probably going to be that you're going to have civilians respond Uh, to those um, events, at least in order to take uh, down the information, the basic information, and to get police officers back at where they sort of need to be. So anyways, yeah, I wanted to focus the program on these three different areas, and that was a really important uh, part of the the position for me, and to develop courses that were relevant. So uh, we developed courses in crime analysis, in intelligence analysis, in um, cybersecurity, in uh, online investigations, which is a huge area, OSINT, that's becoming you know increasingly in demand, especially in the private sector. We have a number of graduates from our program recently who have gone out into the private sector, working for private investigation firms, but doing this kind of open source intelligence and uh, sort of combining. Uh, the, the techniques and the methods for gathering information online for, um, and for presenting information that's, that's been gathered online uh, in a legal and ethical way, and to combine it with uh, sort of traditional intelligence analysis, like doing things like link charting. So taking you know, reams of information uh, from social media, putting it into link charts in order to make sense of it. Uh, and a lot of the time, these these private firms are in fact working hand in hand with police agencies. Um, and sometimes even uh, on on large files, on files that involve organized crime. <clears throat> so, anyways, we yeah, this, these these are the different kinds of courses. We are also introduced to course uh, in security management and in physical security systems. And we have, I guess. Um, the, the other way to think about the streams, I talked about the sort of three broad streams in our program, but the other way to think about it is to have a division between sort of, um, you know, frontline field action oriented type of work. So a lot of our students are interested in being on the front line. And doing that kind of work. So you can do that in the in the public sector, um, but also in the private sector, like doing surveillance, for example, in the private sector. But it's also the other sort of stream here to think about is the more analytical oriented types of jobs, uh, the, the sort of desk work. And that's something that's, you know, more into the realm of crime analysis and intelligence analysis. That that can be actually <laughs> a bit of a disappointment for some of our students. They think that they're going to walk into an intelligence analysis or crime analysis course and be looking at blood splatter uh, or be, uh, you know, um, carry, le- thinking about or learning how to carry a weapon um, and do, the, do these kinds of things. But that's really, as we know, not what crime and intelligence analysis is about. It's more about analytical work. It's about understanding information and drawing patterns from information. So, um, a part of our, the sort of second half of our, uh, stream, I guess, uh, in terms of students are those ones who are interested in this more type of these types of analytical careers. So all, all this to say that, uh, for me getting, um, um, are like developing the program and, and and sort of helping students to find work in the field or to go on to higher education, uh, because this is a diploma level program. So some students do need to go on to maybe do an undergraduate degree and maybe even a master's degree, because that's becoming the de facto um, minimum standard really for the fields of crime and intelligence analysis and to help them get on their way into these different areas. But what I always tell them is that even if you can't get right into the field, of crime and intelligence analysis from a diploma program, that the the diploma program and the things that we learn in the program are very hands on. So you know, compared to a student who's let's say done a, a master's in criminology and gone right through through you know university undergrad, gone on to do a master's in criminology, um, if they take that same route but also combine it with the very applied and hands on uh, techniques and methodologies and information that they're going to get in the diploma program, that they'll be in pretty good stead uh, when it comes to applying for positions. So that's um, the area of uh, the my I guess my main sort of focus is on on program development and students. I'm also involved in a, in a couple of different areas of research. One is uh, around the areas of environmental criminology. And I was looking over some of the podcasts that you've done in the past, and I see that you've uh, had some very uh, interesting people who have talked about environmental criminology. Um, the 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 one area that I'm specifically focused on is the law of crime concentration. I think this is something that you've also covered in some, in at least one of your podcasts, but basically for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, the law of crime concentration basically um, states that crime is concentrated in a way that kind of follows the Pareto principle that, you know, uh, 80% of results are the result are are the result of 20% of causes um, so in the law of cr- crime concentration states more specifically that roughly uh, 50% of crime is going to be located in roughly two to 6% of micro places. And by micro places uh, in environmental criminology, we're talking about either like specific addresses um, or specific street segments, or maybe specific intersections of the street. So it's a really an incredible finding. First of all, it's um, quite amazing to have any kind of law in the social sciences. Um, it's, it's, you know, laws are not easily not easily found in the social sciences, um, and to um, you know, uh, this is a, a really fascinating finding that crime is incredibly concentrated, and the results so far, anyways, have shown uh, have corroborated these initial findings that the initial findings really came from um, a 1989 study by uh, Sherman, Lawrence Sherman, who I believe that you've had on this program. And this was a, a really interesting study. I think it was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which uh, which found that roughly 50% of calls for service were coming from something like 5% of addresses, which is an astounding finding. And what's happened in the years uh, subsequent to that, uh, to the release of that journal publication is that other researchers have found that the, this finding holds, this, this concentration of crime holds across you know, across all different kinds of cities in the U.S. It's been tested in the U.K. Um, and other areas. There's been a couple of tests of the law of crime concentration in Canada as well. So I've been working with uh, Peel Regional Police. Peel Region is a big area that encompasses um, a large city called Mississauga, which is right next to the city of Toronto. And uh, we've been testing the law of crime concentration in in Peel region to see if it holds. And so far our results show that it holds quite nicely that roughly uh, 4% of street segments and a street segment is basically um, a portion of a street block or a street block, I guess you can consider it. And that that accounts for roughly 4% accounts for something in the neighborhood of 50% of crime. And so we're looking at it across different years We're looking at it um, across different types of crime to see if it holds within sort of subcategories of crime and sort of trying to uh, slice and dice it basically to see uh, where and if um, the law of crime concentration ever doesn't hold. Uh, But so far, it seems to be holding across all different areas, which is quite interesting. Uh, We're also looking at in this research, there's been uh, a couple of sort of methodological critiques of the law of crime concentration saying that the, um, the measures that are being used aren't quite accurate and then there need to be different types of measures. So we're looking at these different types of measures that have been proposed and testing to see if the con- law of cr- con- crime concentration holds using these alternative measures as well. I guess, finally, I'll talk about um, ransomware. So um, I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners are familiar with uh, the idea of ransomware attacks. These have become uh, increasingly prominent across the globe. And basically this is when uh, someone holds information for ransom online and uh, demands a payment for it. So we've had you know, government institutions, uh, educational institutions, um, uh, hospitals. We've had all kinds of uh, attacks against different types of in- institutions that are ransomware attacks. Uh, in Canada and across the globe, of course. So what we're interested in doing in this um, ransomware project is to try to figure out the true scope and scale of how much ransomware um, attacks are actually happening and what kind of impact they're having on Canadian citizens and Canadian businesses. Because one thing we know about ransomware attacks is that they're often not reported. Right? There's a real uh, disincentive for especially private corporations to reveal that they've been attacked um, online and or to reveal that they've made a payment online and that they've had their information, which is oftentimes information that's private information from citizens, that they've had it uh, ex- potentially exposed. So we don't really, based on just sort of regular types of reporting, we don't know the true scope and scale of how much ransomware Uh, attacks are actually happening so what we're doing is we're sort of working in the in the dark web area and trying to use that information to suss out exactly um, how much this is happening and uh, this is uh, probably a a long-term project we have some other um, along with Humber College and a couple of different departments at Humber College we have a couple of different other um, educational institutions that are working with us and uh, a couple of um, media outlets as well that are interested in this work so this is a long-term project <laughs> I think it's probably uh, at least another year or so before we get any kinds of results but it, it's definitely an interesting one.
0: You, I've, My listeners have probably never heard me so quiet this whole time I mean I'm just you're doing so much so so much and it's all so interesting so you have the environmental criminology, where your interests really do lie, uh, in terms of what you're trying to achieve and what you're teaching your students. Finally, you've got your new textbook, and you've you've published in the past. I'm, uh, with Dr. Condon, as you said, she was part. Of, she wrote one chapter with another colleague. I yeah. think we uh, we definitely published that on our LinkedIn page, as his LinkedIn page. I shared it. So let's talk about. I, I'm sure we're going to have listeners that want to know where they can read past work, where they can purchase books. So let's talk about that.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, and this is another area where connections and networking comes in. Exactly. Because, uh, yeah, the idea that, the, the, you know, there's a lot of books out there already, textbooks on crime analysis, on intelligence analysis, that the, uh, the value added for our textbook is really the Canadian focus. So we we look at the Canadian context in terms of the the criminal landscape, the information systems, uh, the document standard systems, all of the things that are sort of uniquely Canadian. um, And we bring that into the textbook. There are in the textbook, I would say sort of, uh, those are the kind of like the need to have kind of elements of the textbook for Canadian analysts. So if you're, um, you know, aspiring analyst, or if you've just been hired as an analyst uh, in the the Canadian sector, then you need to know about these uh, very unique kinds of um, uh, contextual factors that are Canadian, right? And also there's even some methodologies that are Canadian in nature. Uh, We have a methodology called SLEPNER, which is um, basically a risk assessment tool. It's used for uh, rank ordering the threats from criminal organizations. A lot of what the work that I did as a criminal intelligence analyst at CISO was working with Slepner and trying to figure out who are the, the worst of the worst um, criminal organizations and rank ordering their threats. So that's a, a, a product that was developed by the RCMP, which is Canada's National Police Force. And it's been put into place. Now it's um, sort of administered by um, Criminal Intelligence Service Canada, CISC. But it's it's and it's you know, it's been altered a little bit and there's been some methodological changes, but it's basically a, a Canadian tool and I, there are similar tools for sure uh, in other jurisdictions. Um, but it's it, if you're going to be working in the field in Canada, then you, you need to know about Slepner, right, so that those are the kind of need to have elements of the textbook and then there were the nice to have elements which are just that there are Canadian examples. And, you know, when you illustrate theoretical principles with Canadian examples, I think it brings it a little bit uh, closer to home if you're an analyst in Canada, because we live in, uh, in a country that is very uh, U.S. sort of centric when it comes to these kinds of fields, right? And, and, and we get a lot of influence from the U.K. as well, but especially from the U.S. And when all of, all of the examples are coming from the U.S. and the U.K., it can be a little bit difficult for students to absorb the, the theoretical information. So the theoretical principles that we cover are common language that, that are spoken throughout the crime and intelligence worlds, right? So the principles are the same. Uh, The methodologies are basically the same, but it's the examples that drive them home and that illustrate those theoretical principles. That's the, the real uh, value added, I think, of the textbook. And hopefully we do also do um, a good job in covering the terrain (laughs) in terms of those basic theoretical principles and those basic methodologies.
0: Yeah, I think definitely when I I, when Dr. Condon arrived at her house, I had a look through and I was very interested because you're, you're right. It was very Canadian centralized. And when I went to OPC, the police college, I was asking them to go through with me the way that they use intelligence, because obviously that's where my expertise lies. And I could see the influence that the UK has had on the operation of intelligence within your police forces. But you're very right. It's very US uh, force and driven. Um, yeah. So it's very interesting. And actually, I think your textbook is relevant in the UK as well. There's some things that we can take away from what you do. Um, so regardless, I think it's very useful for our listeners here in the UK to have a look at this book and see what you're you're writing about in your um, perspectives on how this, how this community works and operates.
1: Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a a lot of um, Mm -hmm. material in there that transcends, you know, uh, geographical boundaries for sure. And and I was very fortunate to be able to work with uh, Cami Condon. Um, She wrote a chapter on bias and very important area of understanding um, how our biases can influence our results. Um, and also Ryan Prox um, yes. from Simon Fraser, uh, he wrote a chapter on sort of advanced uh, methods. And the, the, my co-author uh, was Ian Williams, who's a practicing um, crime analyst at, well, a manager of crime analytics at Toronto Police Service. So it was a nice sort of blend of um, people who have very practical experience, people who have sort of academic experience. And uh, I think it came together quite nicely, yeah
0: i think so too yeah i do and i you know i'm so happy that through networking i was introduced to you because um i'm i'm fascinated with what you have done and what you continue to do and uh, your students are very lucky to be learning off someone like you that has had the practical experience in that element and then now translating that into that academic arena it's really powerful and i thank you for joining me on my on the podcast
1: oh well thank you very much for having me it's been a pleasure